Romans chapter 8 is our passage today. We're going to spend the next two hours studying Romans. I don't know why y'all laughing. No, we, we, uh, we're, we're going to spend the next 20, 25 minutes or so here in Romans 8.28 and just kind of walking through this passage on this subject of our victory in Christ. And to get us started, I'm just going to read the entirety of it, Romans 8.28 through 39. The words will appear on the screens in front of you. Here's what it says. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has been raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, minister this truth to our hearts today. Let us know your love. Uh, Let us be able to rest in it and to derive our knowledge of victory from it and out of that victory to go through our lives. Teach us who we are so that we can do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been uh, considering through the month of January our identity in Jesus. Uh, and so we began by reminding ourselves that in Christ we are loved. And then last week we talked about how uh, in Christ we are righteous uh, without blemish before him. And then next week we're going to consider the fact that in Christ we are powerful for the mission that he has entrusted to us. And today, of course, we're considering that in Christ we have victory. And the victory that we have in mind here, that that Paul has in mind in this passage, is the victory over uh, sin and temptation in our lives. Victory over death and hell and all the enemies that assail us. And it's important for us to remember that. And the reason that we're laying this before you through the month of January is because it is out of that identity uh, that God calls us to do uh, the mission that he's given us. Understand, he doesn't call us to do something in order to be something. He calls us first to be something. And he makes us that. And then as we are his children, as we are uh, loved and righteous and victorious and powerful, then we can do what he calls us to do. Uh, our actions for God are always the outflow of who we are in God. And we can't mix those two things up. So, so we're considering that in Christ we are victorious today. Our victory is something that is not only assured, but it is in fact already accomplished for us in Christ. 
I want you to, to roll that idea over in your heads. It's not just something that's assured. It's more than that. It's already done. It's done for us in Christ. And so if you look at the back of your, your handouts this morning, you'll see the four points that I'm going to run through quickly today. Our victory is certain. Our victory is certain because God ordained it. And our victory is unimpeachable because God is the one who authorized it. And we're going to see how our victory is liberating because Christ is the one who's done it all. And we're going to see that our victory is glorious because it is the expression of God's love. Uh, so we're going to hopefully see those ideas as we go through Romans 8 today. Our victory is not only assured, it's already accomplished for us in Christ. So first of all, consider the fact that our victory is certain because God ordained it. You see that in the first few verses that I read for us this morning. There's that familiar verse, Romans 8, 28, that some of us have memorized, I know, and that we recite to ourselves in troubled times, don't we? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who love God. That's a verse that is powerful to us. It's a reminder that, that God is in control of all things, that he works things for our good. But I want you to, to really drill into that verse a little bit and understand what it is that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us. First of all, notice who this promise is for. It's for those who love God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's for those who love God. It's not a blanket promise for every single human being, is it? The, the, the effect of this qualifier is to say that this is for a particular group of people, namely those who love God. And our immediate objection to that when we read it is to go, well, why is God playing favorites? Right? Why doesn't he make this true for everybody? Why doesn't he make it true for every single human being that all things work together for good? Wouldn't that be a more merciful thing, a more loving thing if he did that? And I grant you that on the surface it does seem that way. But when you really start to think about it a little more, you realize that that objection, that question is actually kind of absurd. It's kind of like saying, you know, saying that, saying why doesn't God cause all things to work for good, even for those who don't love him. It's kind of like saying something like, why can't we solve world hunger without the pesky problem of having to feed everybody? You know, if only we could solve hunger, but without having to give people food. Well, it doesn't work, does it? Or, or if only we could, we could get ourselves warm or, or, or stop being cold, but without having to become warm. I, I wish I could stop being cold without having to go to the trouble of getting warm. It doesn't work, right? That's not how life works. In order to stop being hungry, you have to have food. In order to stop being cold, you have to have warmth. Similarly here, in order for things to be good, in order to have good, you have to have God. There is no good aside from God. So, in, in essence, it's just axiomatic to say that all things work together for good only for those who love God because there's no possible way for things to work together for good for anybody else. God is the only good there is. We don't realize that in this life because there are so many other good things in life that we can enjoy without having a relationship with God. But understand that's an evidence of God's mercy and grace to us in this life. There are good things that we enjoy but all good things, the Bible teaches us, come from God. James tells us all good things come down from the Father of lights. Right? Every good thing is from God. Not only is every good thing from God, everything that is good is good precisely in measure to the proximity to which it is close to God. I think this is true to such an extent that it can, 
it can truly be said that hell, whatever else hell is, is no more nor less than the removal of God's presence for blessing, right? I mean, it's right to talk about hell as, as God's punishment for sin, his just wrath against sin, but it's also right to understand hell as simply God removing his presence for blessing from, from people. That is what hell is. In this life, we experience God's blessing in all of the good things of life, but, but for those who refuse to love God, for those who continue to rebel against God, God will eventually abandon them to themselves and the result will be hell. I am convinced, actually, that one of the reasons that Jesus and the rest of the Bible uses such strong language about hell, and it does use strong language about hell, right? It talks about the lake of fire and, you know, the bottomless pit and uh, outer darkness. and all, It uses all kinds of strong language about hell. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons it does that is because we, in our finite minds in this earth, can't possibly comprehend what an existence apart from God's presence would be. It would be horrible. In fact, um, that's really the, the point of one of C.S. Lewis's little books, The Great Divorce, is, is to try to get that idea across that, that at the end of the day, hell is just life without God. I mean, without God's presence. By the way, for those of you playing Pastor Andrew Bingo, there's your C.S. Lewis reference for the day. All right. <laughs> Got to get that in, right? I think, though, that's what eternity in heaven is going to be, too. Just as, as hell is the removal of God's presence for blessing, so eternity in heaven, heaven, the joy of heaven will be the fullness of God's presence, right? I mean, there will be other joys in heaven, certainly, but the joy, the source of all joy will be the presence of God himself. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Right? So, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And who is it that loves God? According to Paul, he says, those who are called according to his purpose. And that sentence serves to uh, connect it to the explanation of verses 29 and 30. Here is how God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. Verses 29 and 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called... And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those who are called according to his purpose are those who have been foreknown and predestined to conformity to Christ. Now, we have a tendency when we look at these verses, uh, this list of things, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. We have a tendency, I think, when we read those, to locate them on a timeline, Right? At least I do. Maybe you don't do this. Maybe you're free from this error. But, but, but a lot of us, I think, do this. We, we put them on a timeline. We, we imagine that the foreknowledge and the predestination, whatever else they are, are things that occur way back in the past, eternity past somehow. There's foreknowledge and predestination. And then there's, there's calling, which is somehow further on in the timeline. Maybe it exists within our own life, or maybe it's somehow before that, but somehow it's further on in the timeline. And certainly justified, that's something that God does within time, either at the death and resurrection of Christ, or maybe it's something that he does in me personally when I believe, but it's further on in the timeline. And certainly glorification, those whom he justified, he also glorified, that's something that's still future, right? We're still waiting on that uh, when we see Jesus, right? And so we, we kind of space those out on a timeline, which makes it all the more striking then when you realize that for Paul, there is no timeline here. 
These are just all things that God did. These things all happened for Paul concurrently. Whenever it is, it's, it's not quite clear what time he's thinking of, but I think within the theology of Paul in the New Testament, it's safe to bet that he's talking about these things happening in the mind of God in eternity. All of them, including the glorification part. That's something that's already happened in the mind of God. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're not waiting on glorification. We are glorified. I don't know how that works exactly. We, we ran up against this last week, didn't we? When we talked about being righteous in God's sight, being without sin. Uh, our lives are hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we also will be revealed with him in glory. It's a mystery, but it's a mystery that the Bible insists on. This is who we are. We are those who are already in some way glorified. In the mind of God, we are now the glorious beings that we were destined to be. This means, then, that there is no uncertainty about it. I don't see how you can read verses 29 and 30 and think that there is any level of uncertainty at all. There isn't, right? It's certain. Our victory is here. It's written here, isn't it? And it's certain because God ordained it. There is no doubt about whether we will be victorious over sin. There's no doubt about whether we will be victorious over this world. It is certain because it has been decreed in eternity by God. Understand, it's not just as certain as if it were already done. Paul insists it's certain because it is already done. It's done. It's certain. We have the victory. Our victory is not only assured but it's already accomplished for us in Christ. Our victory is certain. Second, our victory is unimpeachable because God authorized it. What then shall we say to these things? Paul, in these next few verses, offers four hypothetical questions that illustrate this truth, that our victory is unimpeachable. Nobody can gainsay it. Four hypothetical questions. Number one, he says, who can be against us? Number two, he says, how will God not give us all things? Number three, who will bring a charge against God's election? Number four, who is there to condemn? Four questions, but they all get to the same point, that our victory is unquestionable. It's unimpeachable. He says in verse 31, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or to put it another way, to be against us is to be against God. Now, don't make the mistake of immediately starting to think about your opponents in this life, your political opponents or your, 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 the people that are opposed to you at work or the people that frustrate you. That's not the main point here. If we're going to apply this to ourselves, I think we have to apply it in terms of those who are against us spiritually, the enemies of our soul, our temptations, our sins, our guilt, our shame, the voice in our head that condemns us. To that voice, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For our purposes, brothers and sisters, consider those enemies. And I do want you to consider that. Don't, don't just let my words kind of roll over your head this morning. I want you to think about that voice in your head that condemns you. That knowledge of sin and we do know that we're sinful. We know our sins. We know our weaknesses. And there are times, if you're like me, there are times when you wonder if you will ever be free of that sin. You want, it feels like it's not going to happen. It feels like you're always going to struggle with temptation and sin. And you say to yourself, I don't know that I really believe in this victory. It doesn't feel victorious. Right? 
Remember that, uh, that John Newton poem? I looked it up and put it in my notes so I wouldn't get it wrong. John Newton wrote this poem about that very issue. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and in every grace, that I might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was, me, t'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Do you understand what Newton is praying for? He's praying that God would help him overcome sin. But listen to what he says. Instead of this, he, God, made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Reference to Jonah there, if you missed it. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you might seek your all in me. Do you feel that? Does that resonate to you? Do you feel like sometimes you have prayed for God to help you overcome sin and not seen victory? Understand, though your heart tells you you have not received victory, you have the victory in Christ. And God still allows those things in your life for this reason that Newton says, to to teach you, to draw you, to cast you more onto him. So that there's never any hope, any, any, any doubt that you might lapse into pride. Our victory is unimpeachable because God authorized it. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he gave up his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, he says in verse 32. This is an a fortiori argument. He's saying, since God already did the biggest thing possible, he gave us his son, certainly with him he will give us everything else. All things are ours in Christ. Isn't that what Paul teaches us? In Christ, all things are are ours. All things are united together in Christ. Hebrews says the same thing. Peter says the same thing, right? Uh, uh, He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. We have all things in Christ. Understand, brothers and sisters, Christianity is not about less. (laughs) It's about more, right? Christianity is not a religion that teaches us to subdue our desires and want less, right? That's Buddhism and Eastern mysticism. You know, get rid of your desires, have no desires, and you'll be content. Christianity knows nothing of that. Christianity says, no, you shouldn't have less desire. You should have more desire. You should have stronger desires. You desire things that are too weak. You need to desire greater things. You should not be content with a big house and a nice car and a flush bank account. You should demand the universe. And Christianity says, in Christ, it's yours. Because Christ is what's given to you. You have Christ. You have God, do you see? And this is why the the saints of the Bible, Paul himself, Jesus himself, are so content with nothing. Jesus had nothing, right? Nothing. He borrowed everything. He borrowed everything. 
And he was content with that because all things are his. All things are ours. All things are ours in Christ. I don't mean that everything, that we can go out and lay claim to things that aren't, you know, don't belong to us, right? That's not the point. The point is, we have God. We have Christ. In him, all things are ours. There's nothing else to be desired. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He declares us righteous. I think we need to say a word here about justification because there's a misunderstanding abroad in the church about it, and I want to correct it. Sometimes when we talk about justification, we think that what that means is that that's God declaring us righteous and we stop there. And because we are aware of our own unrighteousness, we know that we are sinful, then we put that together with this thought that God declares us righteous, and we say, okay, God sees us as righteous through the lens of Jesus, maybe, but I know that I'm really unrighteous. God declares me righteous, but I know that I'm not righteous. And so in our minds, whether we say it this way or not, we believe this idea that God is saying something that isn't strictly true. Maybe it's some kind of a legal fiction. Brothers and sisters, may it never be. God cannot lie, right? It's not possible. What God says by definition is the truth, yeah? What he says by definition is truth. He does not adhere to a standard of truthfulness. Truthfulness adheres to him. He is the truth. What he says by definition is true. So if God declares us righteous, what must that mean? But that we are righteous, we are righteous. Or maybe saying it another way, we could say that God declares us righteous and in declaring makes it so in the same way that God declaring that there be light causes light to come into existence. Maybe it's like that. Maybe he declares us righteous and it is in the very declaration of righteousness that we become righteous. But however it happens, we know that if God declares it, it is true. Therefore, justification is not just God declaring us righteous. It is God making us righteous. God causing us to be righteous. He is the one who justifies. And if God makes us righteous, Paul says, who is there to condemn? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has made righteous? Friends, know that there will come a day when the accuser of the brethren will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will hear that question. Who dares bring a charge against those whom I have justified? And I have no doubt that he will wilt at the question. Who will bring a charge against you? God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn and so he brings it full circle. And the effect of all of these questions is that no one can stand against God. Right? No one can stand against God. Our victory is unimpeachable because God has declared it. Our victory is liberating because Christ has done it. And I'm going to run quickly through the rest of these verses uh, because of our time constraints. But I do want you to see what he says here about Jesus. He says, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus died. More than that, Paul says, 
He was raised. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus uh, takes precedence almost, if we could say it that way, over his death. Namely, I suspect, because if it weren't for the resurrection, then the death of Jesus would have just been an interesting fact of history. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore we know that he is the Son of God with power. He is life incarnate, and therefore his death has meaning for us as a substitution. He died. He paid the penalty for our sin and rose again to demonstrate the effectiveness of it. I should just pause there, shouldn't I, and and make sure that we all understand that. And so let me just say, if that's an idea that is still hard for you to figure out, let's talk about that more. Because more than anything, I want you to understand that Jesus' death is for you, for you to be saved from your sin. His resurrection is for you to know that he is triumphant over sin and death and the grave. And Paul says more than that, he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Have you, have you stopped to think about the truth of that? He's at the right hand of God interceding for you. He prays for you. You, beloved, your face is in the mind of the risen Lord Jesus right now. I think I can say that, right? He's infinite. I I suspect he can hold lots of different people's faces in his mind at the same time. But think about it. You are in his mind right now. He names your name, your name, before the throne of the Father. What else do we need? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yea, more, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who also intercedes for us. We sang it, we sang it last week at the close of our service, right? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, this great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. You don't need anything else. You have Jesus interceding for you, praying for you, remembering you, loving you before the Father. All of this brings Paul to the foundational issue in this discussion, which is will we enjoy a mutually loving relationship with God or not? That's why he gets into, in verse 38, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And if you're reading it closely, you should go, where does, why does he start talking about love all of a sudden? This was a really interesting theological treatise, and all of a sudden he brings in the love of Christ. What is the connection here? And yet the connection really goes back to verse 28, right? In verse 28, he says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so now he's coming back to that subject of love, And the two are the same thing. They're connected, right? We love God because he first loved us. For us to love God means he has loved us. And then Paul says, who shall separate us from this love of God? And then we have these great, this great litany of statements in verses 35 through the end of the chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he he quotes Psalm 44, which I wanted to spend some time going into, but I don't have time this morning. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment today. This afternoon, after the potluck, okay, after you go home and before you fall asleep, I want you to look up Psalm 44 and read it. It is a psalm of lament. 
It's striking, actually, in its lamentation because it's not one of those songs of lament that ends on a high note. A lot of the psalms have lamentation and prayer and, and woe is me type of language, but then they end by saying something like, but I will trust in the Lord or, or God heard my prayer. Or they end on some kind of high note. Psalm 44 ain't one of those. Psalm 44 ends with the psalmist going, please help. And it just ends. And David is pulling that in and he's saying, this is true of us. We can relate to this because our lives are sometimes terrible. And brothers and sisters, maybe that is true for you this morning. There's something in your life where this speaks to your heart, where you're enduring trial or tribulation or persecution or some kind of suffering. And you feel the truth of that. And into that situation, Paul answers in verse 37, will this separate us from the love of Christ? No. And by the way, your translation should say no at the beginning of verse 37. If it doesn't, write it in in the margin. That's the thrust of the Greek here, no. And if it does have the word no at the beginning of verse 37, put in an exclamation point after the no and underline it and highlight it and circle it because that's how you're supposed to read this. You're supposed to go, shall these things separate us from the love of Christ? No, no. But in all these... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We are victorious. And for Paul, this is the glory of it. This is the reason our victory is glorious. Our victory is glorious not because it's fun to win. It is fun to win. I like winning. I never think of myself as competitive until I start playing games with my family, and then I become competitive. Although not compared to my wife, but don't, she's not here, so. <laughs> it, is, it is fun to win, yeah? It's fun to win, but that's not the point. Paul isn't saying our victory is glorious because it's good to win and we're glad to be victorious. He's not saying our victory is glorious because, uh, because it gives us peace in the night. Or He's saying it's glorious because it is the evidence of God's love. Friends, you're loved. <laughs> I mean, in a, in a very real sense, that's all these four sermons in January are about. I know the first one was about love specifically, and we have these other, other adjectives that we're adding into these uh, later sermons, but they all come down to the same thing. In Christ, you are loved. You have the victory in Christ. Our victory is not only assured, but it is already accomplished for us in Christ. So, Wrapping up, my question is, are you struggling with the sense that you're losing the battle for godliness? We all struggle with that at some point, and it comes and goes. Some days we feel like we're struggling with that more than others. But I need you to know, brothers and sisters, that the answer to that lies not in trying harder, but in realizing that Jesus has already won the victory for you in Christ. Rest, therefore, in the victory that Jesus has accomplished. And if you still are struggling to understand that, don't leave without talking to us about it. The victory is yours in Christ. Take a moment in silent thought and prayer. Ask God to give you a sense of his love. He loves you whether you sense it or not, but ask him. Ask him to be gracious to you in giving you a knowledge of it that touches your heart so that you can join us in singing our last song together in just a moment.